0: Hi everyone! Welcome to the Weird World podcast. My name is Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Dean. Oh, that's my name. <laughs> uh, what What are we going to talk about tonight,
1: Dean? Tonight we're going to bring you part one. Oh, two parter, huh? Two parter. It's going to be about the Brooke Hart story. I don't want to give too much away. I know this. You're probably reading the description. I'll probably be a little bit vague in the description of this and a little bit vague in the title as well. But the first part is going to be about the crime committed against Burkhart. And the next part is going to be about what happened after that crime was discovered and those perpetrators were captured. I know that's super vague, but trust me, it's a very chilling, very suspenseful story. It's um, pretty dramatic and it's going to have a little bit of a trigger warning for people who don't like Bad things happening to people.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay.
1: Anyway, this story is weird in the sense of where and when it occurred. That comes to us from November in
0: 1933. Oh, an oldie,
1: oldie. Yes, this is a story about Brooke Hart. This guy had it all. He was, I think, 21 or 22. <laughs> I should probably know that. Years old. And despite this being I, about, what, about four years into the Great Depression, the Hart family was very well do They owned a department store in downtown San Jose that was still thriving at the time. And its location was on the southeast corner of Santa Clara Avenue and 1st Street, right there in the middle of the city the city was you know it's a major city now it was a good-sized city then but it was kind of a relatively sleepier town it wasn't anything like san francisco or, or los angeles and at this period or even it, but it was you know it was, a, it was a large city it was an urban center but the downtown core was kind of the only place you had that kind of um, retail and offices and things like that
0: okie-dokie
1: so, Brooke was was kind of this, think of him as the scion of the probably the wealthiest family in San Jose, and really just kind of kind of had it all. Mm-hmm. He had recently been named vice president. Of At
0: 21 or 22. 22
1: years old, I think. Something. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, it helps to have your dad yes, own the company. He had just graduated from Santa Clara University earlier that June, so it's a few months before this takes place. Again, this is in November. The family was still hiring and paying decent wages, so they were really very, very well well liked in the city. They are philanthropic; they um, helped wherever they could. Brooke himself was this handsome. He was bright. He was super pleasant and kind, and kind of it's like, tons of people knew him, and it's like everyone who knew him liked him.
0: This is very unrealistic. No, he was he was a popular guy. I know, but it and, just sounds very unrealistic.
1: Why does that sound unrealistic?
0: Um, the well-to-do don't tend to be super kind and nice.
1: Wow. Well, they were Well, they time. don't. I, I, in this case, they were. It's funny because also this time, Sarah Winchester, who was building the Winchester house, mm-hmm. was building all those rooms and those stairways to nowhere and things like that, that if they've made so much of and pretend the house is haunted and things like yeah. that, she was actually building those to keep a lot of people employed in the construction. So San oh. Jose had two prominent wealthy families, the Winchesters and the Hearts. right yeah. now, who I, I would argue were doing good things.
0: Well, I believe that about Sarah Winchester. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the Hart family lived at a mansion at the northwest corner of the Alameda and Nagley Avenue, kind of in in not too far from what's now. that We're actually now pretty urban, but at the time more of a residential area. The home had been built in 1920, by the way, and was patterned after... The Petit Trianon in Versailles, which I'm sure you've probably personally visited.
0: I did actually visit there, yes. Just say, yes. A, you
1: should probably get your haircut there.
0: No, not at Versailles. Okay.
1: Brooke lived with his parents there. He had three sisters, Jeanette, Miriam, and, and Elise. And there was also his older brother, Alexander Joseph Jr. So, afternoon, November 9th, 1933, Brooke leaves the department store crosses behind that alley to the south of the department store, it, it faced north and faced on to uh, Santa Clara. And so he, he parked his car in the garage right behind the store, behind the alley. He went there to grab his car. It was a yellow convertible Studebaker Roadster oh, hot piece of car. Yeah. His dad had bought that for him when he graduated from college. Nice. Yeah. Always the dutiful son, Brooke, went to get his car because he was going to drive his dad to a meeting of the San Jose Commerce, Chamber of Commerce, I guess, at the San Jose Country Club Uh that afternoon. This is the days, though, of before Uber, so he was also going to pick his dad up, right? (laughs) So he drops him off, he leaves, and he's expected to pick his dad up when it's over sometime after six o'clock that that evening, right? Right. But when the time came around for Brooke to arrive to pick up his dad, his dad, by the way, went by the name AJ.
0: Alexander Joseph? Alexander Joseph, yeah,
1: senior. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brooke didn't show up. Uh Uh-oh. This was unusual. Brooke, again, was just, he was punctual. It was just, it was impossible to imagine that he just would forget or not pick his dad up. Still, you know, it, it, he wasn't that uneasy. He just thought it was weird. And he told Perry Belshaw, he was the manager of the San Jose Country Club, while they dined that, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little worried about Brooke. I'm sure Belshaw discussed, you know, boys, 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 don't worry about it. So they had dinner. But then about 8 o'clock, now I don't know if, if I, I imagine that the dad must have got a ride home from someone else, called someone, because I think he's at yeah. home. By about 8 o'clock, the, uh, the Hart family got a call, and it was a friend of Brooks, and he said that they had been supposed to meet each other at 8 p.m. So this must have been a little bit after 8 p.m. They they had been um, they're supposed to meet each other somewhere, and Brooke had not shown up. So that was it. Mm-hmm. At this point, AJ said he just knew something was wrong, so he called the police. Yeah, AJ asked the police if there had been any car accidents. That evening, that might have involved a yellow roadster.
0: I remember doing that back yeah. in the day. Looking for, <laughs> for you, me? yes. Yeah.
1: Well, I didn't even have a yellow roadster car. That was no. Ones, so. There you, had not. You
0: were driving a a blue black Saturn.
1: A blue black Saturn. <laughs> <laughs> so no accidents, but the police. You know, this kid's rich. Rich family. They're worried. They sprung into action, and they went to his last known whereabouts was where he parked his car. So they went to the garage, and they talked to the parking attendant. And the attendant said that, yeah, Brooke came and got his car. It was right around 6 p.m. Last I saw him, he turned east on Santa Clara Avenue, maybe 5 after 6. So they kept making inquiries, and they found someone... At the department store, at the Hart department store, who worked with Brooke, who said, yeah, I saw him in his car about 630 near the corner of Santa Clara and 14th Street. That's only about a mile east of the parking garage. And it's 25 minutes later than when the attendant saw him. So it's a little bit weird. If both times can be trusted, you wouldn't think it'd take 25 minutes to go a mile, even in um, rush hour traffic in San Jose in 1933.
0: He probably made a little stop.
1: Maybe so. About seven o'clock, about so about a half hour later, when he was supposedly seen in kind of East San Jose, a rancher in then semi-rural Milpitas, about mm. seven miles to the northeast of of downtown San Jose, saw someone who looked like Brooks standing next to a car on Evans Lane in Milpitas. Now, again, it's a, is a growing, thriving city at the time. There was mostly, I think, there was a lot of citrus farms and things oh, like that, okay. and was pretty, you know, more or less rural, even though it's just a few miles away from San Jose. Now they, they pretty much merged together. The rancher didn't think anything of this, of course. He had no reason to think of anything of this, but he came back around 8.30 or so, passing by from wherever he was going. He passed by that same place again where he had seen someone who looked like Brooke with a car, and the car was still there, but no one else was.
0: Hmm. That was
1: about 8.30. So back at the Hart home, the family is... You you can imagine, is waiting very anxiously. Their their anxiety must have been increasing every few minutes, just hoping for some word from Brooke or of Brooke, what what could have happened to him. Finally, it's 9.30, so it's been going on. I mean, they've really been a little nervous since maybe 6.30ish, but they've been very, very nervous since a little after 8 o'clock. At 9.30, their telephone finally rang. It was not exactly the call they hoped for, but it was better than the worst possible news. The call was from Brooke's kidnappers.
0: Oh, he was kidnapped.
1: Did you not see that one? Well. What'd you think it happened to?
0: I, well, I knew there was gonna be some sort of tragedy.
1: Sure, sure. So Brooke had been kidnapped. Elise Hart, his older sister, answered the phone. She said that a, quote, soft-spoken man, unquote, told her that they had abducted Brooke and they would call back soon with instructions. Seems kind of weird, doesn't it? But you'll see what, what, what I think. What they were doing. An hour and a half later, they finally did call again. Ten thirty, or yeah, well, no, you know what? Was it nine it thirty? either an hour and an hour and a half later? But about ten thirty, they finally connected to the heart home again. Later on, the telephone company would say, yeah, that the number that connected at ten thirty had tried to call. The heart house three times before that. Oh wow! But had been able, unable to connect. I assume that means the hearts didn't know how to leave their phone alone. I'm guessing they got a busy signal or something like that. I mean, so oh. they, I mean they probably were. They were probably calling the police and things like that. I'm yeah. sure they were. So anyway, luckily though, the kidnappers did uh, connect again about 10:30 or so, and this time the old other sister, Mary, answered the phone, and I guess the caller must have had must have like muffled his voice or somehow tried to disguise his voice because she would only say that she thought it sounded like a man. Oh. So he's probably doing something. Maybe he's p- pitching it differently, something yeah. like that. But this man told her that they needed $40,000 for the safe return of Brooke.
0: Which is how much About $880,000. Oh, okay. So
1: a, a pretty big chunk of change. especially I mean, this, this, the, the family is doing well, but this is the in the middle of the Great yeah. Depression. He said they'd call it yet again the next day, and they'd give them instructions for how to do this transaction. Meanwhile, Perry Bellshaw—he's the San Jose County, the, I'm sorry, the San Jose Country Club manager that uh, AJ had had dinner with that night. Yeah, he lived in Milpitas, lived in a big spread. I imagine in Milpitas. So he's out there and he spotted Brooke's car at the same place the rancher had seen it. Now, the rancher, I I, I take this to me, the rancher probably reported this like the next day, because at the time he didn't, you know, it's right. just the car. But yeah. Perry Belshaw knew. Brooke's car. He recognized that yellow convertible Studebaker Roadster. And he also, of course, knew one of the few, you know, few, few non-police persons and non-family members who knew that Brooke had been abducted. Missing, yeah. So he reported this to the police about 11 p.m. just after he saw the car there. The police then, of course, rushed out to where the car was found. And they did identify it as Brooke's yellow Studebaker. But again, no Brooke. So the police, by this time, had already run down some leads, such as talking to the parking attendant, but now they really just sprung into action. The San Jose Police Department, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office, and even the Federal Division of Investigation, which is a predecessor of the FBI, all waded into the case that, that night. Yeah. So again, helps to be a zillionaire. The well, tel-
0: isn't kidnapping usually... a federal the, crime, yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm sure that's why. Yeah, by this time, because kidnapping had become... I mean, kidnapping... If you don't stomp on it, it, it could just like in play... I'm you know i not going to say where the countries are because I don't want to piss anybody off, but yeah. there are lots of countries in South America and Asia where kidnapping has just become routinized. It's yeah. routine. It's done all the time. You have to crush it. And this is in the 20s and in, in the 30s into the Depression, kidnapping had exploded. So law enforcement, they made it a federal crime and really went after it and, and punished people severely for doing those death penalty cases, things like yeah. that. So kidnapping is... Fairly unheard of, and was is very is pretty uncommon in the U.S. compared to other countries. Uh, kidnapping is very, very uncommon.
0: Yes. So now, if people are kidnapped in the U.S., they're usually going to end up being murdered, right? Whereas mm. these other countries where kidnapping for ransom is fairly common, yes, your chances of surviving a kidnapping are much greater. Well, at this point, as long kidnapping as can pay for you.
1: Yeah, but kidnapping still was still I think still pretty common by 19, 1933. Yeah. So it wasn't unusual for a wealthy kid to be kidnapped right. and to be ransomed and successfully. So this 1030 call was traced by the police. They, they had already put a trace on the Hart's home phone. And the telephone company said it had come from San Francisco. Oh, okay. And I think that meant the 930 call. The 1030 call came from San Francisco as well. And it had come specifically from the Whitcomb Hotel. Oh. It's still there, by the way. It's at Market Street and 8th. It's just a short walk from the headquarters of Twitter.
0: Okay. Right there Yay. in the um,
1: South of Market area of San Francisco. Police thought these calls from San Francisco were a ruse, though. They thought the kidnappers were almost certainly closer to home, that they knew Brooke. They knew his patterns. They 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 figured that he must have been. They, these kidnappers were almost certainly from San Jose, and maybe they're just going places to make the calls to confuse them and, and lead them in the wrong direction. Yeah. They started searching for for Brooke right away, but they kept their. I guess they searched a little bit in the Oakland area. I'm not sure why. If they got a tip or not.
0: What are they searching
1: for? Brooke. They're I, trying to I, see if they can find any sign of Brooke. Any sign of these kidnappers what,
0: walking up and down streets. I don't I know. Mean, what do you? I, I, how I, would I, they know where to?
1: They were probably looking in out-of-the-way places because one of the areas they centered their their search was in the hills. So Milpitas kind of as you go east there, it hits very pretty rugged hills there, right? Again, not right near San Jose. People don't realize there's a lot of very isolated hilly areas there right outside San Jose and Melpitas. So just to the east, there's like little cabins and things like that there. So they were searching that area in that hilly, rugged areas east of Melpitas, very near where the car was found. They thought that was their best lead.
0: Hmm.
1: The area around uh, like where Calaveras Dam is now so again. It's right outside the heart of Silicon Valley, but it's actually a pretty lonely
0: area. But did they send anybody to the Whitcomb Hotel?
1: Probably. Let's assume they did. Okay. Ass- I'm I'll sure be they very did. disappointed if they did. I'm sure they they I probably called the San Francisco PD and they checked yeah, it out and okay. nothing came. Maybe I think there was a payphone at the Whitcomb Hotel. Oh, okay. This is back in the olden days when they had payphones everywhere. Yeah, that's true. The next day, though, someone found Brooks' wallet. This is on the 10th. They found it, weirdly, on the guardrail of a tanker called Midway that was harbored in San Francisco. It's at Pier 32. The tanker had been refueling a passenger liner called the SS Lurline at Pier 32 for like five hours, for like midnight to 5 a.m. They're just pouring gas into Lurline, And so the police thought, okay, maybe someone... In the Lurleen, maybe the kidnappers are on that ship and they toss that out of the window and it just happened to land on the midway nearby. They meant for it to land in the ocean right? and get rid of the evidence. The Lurleen was heading for Los Angeles already. From there, it was going to go to Honolulu. So they oh. thought, okay, these guys, the kidnappers, maybe they're on the Lurleen and they're right now on the way to LA. So they hurriedly... I'm assuming they call the LAPD, and they were able to intercept the Lurline still at harbor in, I I imagine, San Pedro. Yeah. And they boarded it. They stopped anybody from leaving the ship, the Lurline, and they literally questioned every single crew member and passenger. Wow. And searched their rooms before they let the ship go on its way to Honolulu. One of those passengers was a former, I think former, I think he's retired by this point, maybe not, but baseball superstar Babe Ruth. Oh, wow. Was on the ship. He was traveling down to, he lived in, in the Bay Area. He was traveling down to Los Angeles to see the USC Stanford football game. Oh. So, so he yeah. decided
0: to take a cruise ship. Yeah, take That's a cruise weird. ship
1: to see a football game. Maybe he was going to go, I know, because I'm sure it was leaving for Honolulu as soon as it, you know, yeah. refueled or what have you. So yeah, that, that is odd. Back in the day, so the family is waiting around for word from the kidnappers, but it didn't come at all that next day, November 10th, as they expected and as they were told. They meanwhile organized a private search. They hired a plane to scour that same area around the foothills again near mm-hmm. Milpitas where the, uh, where the car was found. This was on November 12th. The plane didn't see any sign. The police, such as it was, forensically checked out the scene of where the car was and they thought they saw the signs of kind of a scuffle. They got some footprints, the lights had also been turned on, left on. So to them it seemed like he was nabbed quickly and pulled out of his car, like someone had lured him to this kind of lonely area here or maybe he had he meeting someone, they didn't know. But they thought that uh, somehow these bad people had seen him there, maybe recognized him and snatched him, which seems pretty spur of the moment. Yeah, but that's what they thought by seeing these signs of this alleged scuffle, and also that that jived with him having driven out to that area alone. Because remember, he was seen on Fourteenth Street alone, according to witnesses who had said they had seen him driving out of San Jose just after he picked up his car at six. Right. Okay. So it seemed to you know it seemed to jive a little bit with that. Finally, on the twelfth, later that same day, where they I guess they had the plane in daytime searching the area, the family got a telegram postmarked. From Sacramento. Oh. So these were mobile kidnappers. Yeah. It arrived at the Hart House this time, or by now, I guess the kidnappers were a little less greedy because now they say, you know what, 20,000 bucks will be enough. So half, they had halved their ransom demand just days apart, a couple of days apart. That's weird. Yeah, it is odd. So they sent this telegram saying, you know, get 20,000 bucks ready. The next day, a letter arrived also postmarked from Sacramento. I guess the telegram wasn't postmarked. They don't postmark telegrams, but they knew it was sent from Sacramento. This letter was postmarked for Sacramento. So it was was almost certainly, it's the next day. So it was, I'm sure, sent around the same time the telegram was sent. So wait,
0: hang on a second. Mm -hmm? Telegrams, you write out your message and give it to somebody Uh at the telegraph office,
1: yeah. right? I, I don't know what the, I mean, maybe there's a delay. The telegraph It must not have been
0: said. Yeah. It must not have been specific. The ransom amount is. It must have made it sound maybe like it was a business deal or something.
1: Probably something like that or maybe they said, hey, you know, I don't know what in the old days could you, would you pay more for a rush or just put it on the pile and it could have been sent an hour after you left. I don't know. I don't know how telegrams worked, but I, I imagine lots of people were selling telegrams. So I don't know that there was a telegram guy there as soon as you gave it to him. He started going, do,
0: do, 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 do. We need to do a little All bit right, more research on this.
1: On telegrams? Yeah, actually, yes. no, we're good. Don't worry about it. So the letter was also sent from Sacramento. It arrived the next day. That was sent, by the way, to the family's department store, not to their home. I don't hmm. know why. They may not have known the address of the home. Because otherwise they've been calling and telegramming. Well, wait, do you have yeah, to? Yeah, because that's the, how telegrams are yeah, delivered
0: to the door, are right? They? Okay.
1: So. I mean, they must have then. Well, anyway, for some reason they sent the letter to the home, and finally, the pardon the story, rather sorry. And finally, there were some instructions in that letter. AJ, the father, was told to have a radio installed in Brooke's car. That I the cannabis, that indicates the kidnappers knew the car had been recovered and found. Yeah. And that he was told to the next day he should listen up, get in the car, and listen to the radio because the ransom drop location would be broadcast on NBC Radio's KPO radio station. And that when he heard that on the radio station, he was AJ was going to have to drive the money to that location for the drop off. Weird. Here's a problem though the reason Brooke had had to drive his father to the country club back on the day of the kidnapping was because AJ Can't drive. Had, cannot drive. He had never learned to drive. So this was a problem. The kidnappers clearly did not know that. Yeah. So that same day, the 13th, when he was supposed to be, you know, sitting in the car waiting to drive somewhere that he couldn't do, he advertised a $5,000 reward for the safe return of Brooke. But in it, he, he pledged that, hey, I will not pursue any criminal charges. I'll let it go. In other words, hint, hint, right. it's you guys I'm talking to. For, I'll give you 5,000 bucks as a reward for finding my son. Basically, I'm going to close my eyes, put my head down, you give me my son back, and we're good, no questions asked. The police kind of bolster this by saying, hey, and we will not today, now we we will no longer try to tap or trace any calls coming into the Hart family. So, in other words, it's like, hey, if you want to get a hold of it, it's on the download, you'll get your 5,000 bucks, you'll go away, it's all good. That was the Mm -hmm. idea anyway. The next day, another letter arrived. This time, it was postmarked from San Francisco again. This letter, I'm sorry, this was Tuesday, November 14th, that this letter arrived. And it told AJ to put the ransom money in a black satchel and drive to Los Angeles. So his reward message didn't say anything like, I can't drive. Right. So they still didn't know this. So... Well, they are was, they
0: saying come alone or we'll kill the kid? I, I, mean, I think
1: that was that was clearly implied that AJ had to do it. He had to be alone. Yeah. They knew who he was. They right. didn't know who some anybody else could be a cop. Yeah. So they AJ has to drive this time all the way to LA, bring the 20000 dollars ransom in, in a black satchel, and you know, they'd give him his son. AJ just is very frustrated. He's got to get word yeah. to these people that he can't drive, that this was a non-starter. They had to think of something else. So the next day he put up a big sign on a prominent window of his department store that said, I can't drive. (laughs) I, A.J. Hart, can't drive. You know, kidnappers. So, I mean, obviously they were hoping the kidnappers walked by the department store, which is, you know, they were clearly in touch. It it does seem by this point they knew what was happening in San Jose, but also they're in places like San Francisco and Sacramento, but those those aren't that far away.
0: And also it's clear, Brooke hasn't doesn't know anything about their plans to get the ransom because he could say hey my dad yeah, can't drive you're right so. oh
1: that's interesting yeah so he is, it's some kind of a, a put on or something like that yeah 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 that's, that's a good point yeah so clearly they um well it implies something Have else him, we'll talk about or
0: that he's just secluded in a room and, yeah you know
1: So that same night this is the 15th now a call came into the heart mansion and it still demanded A.J. drive to deliver the ransom in person. So they apparently did not go by the department right. store and see the sign. Hart, the senior, A.J. Hart, asked to speak to his son. The caller just said, hey, he's in a safe place. He's at a safe location. Don't worry about it. Get the money ready. Uh, presumably on the same call, he said, by the way, I can't drive. Right. So they had to think of something else. Luckily, I'll, the police. i have to
0: have somebody drive me. I mean.
1: Yeah. That's- yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, they probably pondered it. Yeah. So luckily, the police had lied. And of course, they were tapping yes, the phone. Yeah. And they they traced this call. They traced it pretty quickly. They traced it to a garage in downtown San Jose, not that far from where he was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. The police rushed to the location, got into the garage, but no one was there. It was deserted. There was a payphone there. Yeah. It had to have come from that payphone perps were gone the kidnappers had they hadn't got there quite in time oh so frustrating <laughs> oh, it's a suspenseful scene carry yet another ransom man came on the next day november 16th so he's been gone for a week now yet again the kidnappers told aj to drive the ransom to a site they would reveal in time soon. So I, I, I don't understand that because if he's talking he must have maybe he forgot to tell them on that on that call earlier where he said that I want to talk to my son. Yeah. They probably just said he's in a safe location and hung up. He wasn't able to tell them because right. now there's they're still demanding that he drive the ransom money to them, to a, a place to be re- revealed in time soon. And another call came in even that night and said basically the same thing, just sort of repeating what they had just said, just said. So again, the police are still they're bugging their phone. This last call, they traced to a payphone at a different parking garage. It's called the Plaza Garage. It's on Market Street near San Antonio. It's a little over a mile east of downtown San Jose. That location was about 150 feet from the main San Jose Police Department station. Yeah, I mean,
0: how many cops did they have in San Jose? They should have put somebody in every parking garage (laughs) that had a... Well, I
1: mean, just because the last one came from a parking garage doesn't I mean the next well, one's going to, but it did. It did, so. And Police Chief Jan Black and County Sheriff William Emig I, I, were there. They, with I'm sure tons of backup, rushed to this garage, and they got there literally as a man is hanging up the payphone. phone. And? They arrested him. It was 8 o'clock at night. His name was Thomas. Harold Thurman. He went by the name Harold. He was twenty eight years old. He was unemployed, had been born and raised in San Jose. And he was one of the kidnappers of Brooke Hart. He was. yes, okay. They took him to the police station. So so again, they arrested him about eight o'clock. By three am, they had a full confession. Oh, you have to imagine. That it was a 1930s style interrogation techniques. Bright like sure. telephone books. Oh, oh, I, it was at least that. Okay. But by 3 a.m., he had admitted to kidnapping Brooke Hart, and he admitted he had not acted alone. Thurman admitted that he had been with a Confederate. He had a partner in this crime, and that Confederate was right now holed up in a room at the CD California Hotel, also just a few blocks away near the police station, I have no idea they must have known the, that where the San Jose police station department is right. there why they hold up so close. so close is beyond I mean I know you, know, you want to be fairly nailed at near you know the house in downtown San Jose or something like that but yeah. finding a place 150 feet making that last call 150 feet from the main police station was was amazingly dumb
0: no. yeah So he wasn't in Los Angeles. Nobody was in Los Angeles.
1: No, I'm sure they they had gone. Obviously, they had driven to Sacramento, driven to San Francisco to do these things. So the police were right. Those were ruses. Those were misdirections. Right. At 3.30 that morning, the police burst into the room of John Holmes. He was known as Jack to his friends. He was not a porn actor. Holmes lived in the Willow Glen area of South San Jose in a home belonging to his mother-in-law. He's actually from a pretty well-to-do family. Well, he wasn't very well-to-do right now. He was down on his luck a little bit. He Mm -hmm. lived there in his mother-in-law's house with his wife and their two children. But he had recently lost his job as a salesman, and his wife had separated from him. So his life is kind of spiraling downward. Mm -hmm. So he's hanging out with his crooked crony, and they're staying in some uh, sleazy hotel kidnapping rich kids. Thurman claimed... In his written confession, which he put on paper the next day, the afternoon of November 17th, that Holmes had approached him about six weeks before this happened with this kidnapping plot. Holmes has said, hey, the hearts are like, they're the richest people in the city. We can get a ton of money. For their beloved Siam Brooke, heir to the fortune, if we kidnap him, home for ransom.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Holmes, naturally, of course, said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, 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 it was Thurman's idea." Yeah. Harold. Here, here's the thing, yeah,
0: cops, we yeah, don't give a shit whose idea it was. You're both doing it. Well,
1: so I know. I they're know. questioning it separately, yeah. and criminals are always going to try to lay the blame on the other one because yeah. they want to ease the ber- their mm-hmm. sentencing or pretend they're cooperative or whatever. So Holmes said. Thurman had done it, but here is Holmes' story, and this is why I, I believe Thurman. Holmes said that the two of them have been out at a movie two days before the kidnapping. That's it. As they are leaving the movie theater, they happen to run bump into Brooke Hart and see him. And Holmes said Thurman grabbed his arm, pointed out Brooke Hart, and said, "Quote: There goes Brooke Hart. If we pick him up, we can get a nice piece of change." End quote. Mm-hmm. That. Two days before? I mean, it's not impossible. Yeah, that just seems six weeks makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And I think Holmes was the smarter of the two. You know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and neither was geniuses, given the fact that they were hanging out at 150 feet mm-hmm. from the police station. So regardless of who the mastermind was, eventually they did have stories that more or less jived with the big picture. Maybe it wasn't who planned it and who did what, but... The, the, the story more or less of what happened that night on November 9th when they kidnapped Brooke came together. Here is that very sordid story. So just after Brooke exited the parking garage, remember it was about 6 o'clock, right behind the department store, he on his way to pick up his father, Thurman was waiting for him. And he just—I guess—at a stop sign, he just slipped into the passenger seat. It was a convertible. Uh-huh. I imagine, that so you can just grab the door, open it, yeah. slid into the passenger seat, and put a gun on him. Oh. And said, "Drive to Milpitas." So Brooke did as he was told. Why the next mile would take twenty-five minutes? Yeah. Given the witnesses statements. That doesn't make any sense to me. They they wouldn't have stopped. It could have been, again, even with bumper-to-bumper traffic, I don't see how it's going to take 25 minutes. Maybe the times weren't qu- quite right. right. Yeah. Who knows? But the, remember, there's also the witnesses. They had multiple witnesses said they'd seen him driving. They all said they'd seen him driving alone. Oh, yeah. But it was night by time. This is November. So right. wouldn't it be night after 6 p.m.? Yes. Dark, at least dusk. Yeah. And visible, so visibility wasn't very good. And of course, people's t- sense of times are notoriously weak. So let's assume yeah. they, they really did see him. Um, at at, at six thirty, but and the, and the rancher also would see, see that car there later about seven o'clock. So Brooke did it. He, he was told he drove to Milpitas, like I said, it's about a seven or so miles away. They got to that lonely area along Evans Lane, and Thurman ordered him to pull over, and Brooke sees a man with another car waiting there. This was, of course, Jack Holmes at the rendezvous point. The two men put a pillowcase over Brooke's head uh-huh. to blind him, blindfold him, so he wouldn't see where he was going. And they hustled him into their car and took off. And, and so maybe he, maybe he did resist. Maybe he saw the pillowcase and got got worried. So yeah. maybe that, maybe that's why they saw a scuffle. They did leave the lights on, which is a little bit weird. Yeah, but I don't know. the 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 police probably read a little too much into that. And once they're in the car, they headed north. So they're going north toward, um, actually I think this is pretty quickly in Alameda County. And they eventually arrive at the approach to the San Mateo Bridge. This was in a town called Hayward. It's, it's, a, it's a city south of Oakland. It's about 20 miles or so, or so north of Melpitas, So it's a good, decent drive from, from where they had taken him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The San Mateo Bridge, for those of you not familiar with the Bay Area, it crosses kind of the southern part of the San Francisco Bay. You know, think of San Francisco Bay comes along and it goes pretty decent far north and, and a, a long stretch south and kind of forms an arc where Silicon Valley is at the southern end of it. It's, um, so it's north of the southern end, but it's still at the southern half, let's say, of San Francisco Bay. And it connects o- the East Bay where Hayward and, and these places are mm-hmm. to the peninsula, to San Mateo County.
0: Okay. Have I been on that bridge?
1: Yeah, I'm sure you. Yes, you have. Do I hate it? You uh, you for sure hate <laughs> it because you hate all bridges. <laughs> there is weirdly there is a closer bridge called the Dumbarton Bridge. It's quite a bit closer to Milpitas. And they could have used that bridge, but my guess is it's the bay is much shallower where the Dumbarton Bridge is. In yeah. fact, m- much of it is just almost like almost like a causeway yeah. over a kind of marshy, muddy, mucky uh, ground as opposed to real true open water. Yeah. So my guess is they drove up to the Salmon Tail Bridge f- for that reason. It was more of it was over open ocean. Okay, Holmes and Thurman continued about a half a mile onto the bridge. They were clearly trying to get over more open water. Again, the base of that bridge, even even there, is kind of a marshy muddy area. So they drive a half mile along the bridge, and according to Thurman's confession, quote. We stopped the car and ordered Brooke to get out. By the way, this is where you might want to have a, you know, this is not good. This is the start of things that are bad. Trigger warning. Yes. So we stopped the car and ordered Brooke to get out. He started to cry for help, and Holmes hit him over the head a couple of times with one of the bricks. I'll explain that in a second. They were pretty good blows, and he didn't give us much trouble after that. We then tied his arms behind him with the wire and also bound his legs with it. So, you can see pretty obviously, Holmes and Thurman had come prepared. Yeah. Thurman would later say that he had made a trip that very afternoon of the 9th, the day of the kidnapping. That afternoon, he had gone uh, to get these supplies. Quote, I went to Merritt's plumbing shop and bought three bricks for 10 cents each and 55 cents worth of wire to make preparations to kidnap Brooke Hart. End quote. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Holmes, for his part, said kind of the same thing. Quote, we led him, Brooke, to believe we were going to transfer him to another car. Remember, he has a pillowcase on his head. Yeah. At this moment, an automobile came over the bridge and Brooke started to shout for help. He must have heard it. Mm-hmm. I hit him with my fist and knocked him down. Again, uh, Thurman had said it was with a brick, and it almost certainly was. It was a good blow, and I don't think he ever snapped out of it. I wanted to show him we meant business. Harold Thurman got the concrete blocks and tied them to Brooke's feet. Then I said to Harold, let's give it to him. Then we picked him up and we threw him overboard, meaning you know, over the side of the bridge, end quote. Wow. Yeah. They're pretty horrible. Holmes and Thurman had, as you can tell, tied bailing wire around Brooke and then the, those concrete blocks, the 22-pound concrete blocks, they had tied those to his legs. So they clearly intended to kill him. From well, that's... Uh, malice aforethought. There was yeah. never any intention to, to, to kidnap him alive. Wow. Holmes again said, quote, "We picked him up hand and foot and heaved him over into the water. I don't know whether he cried out or not End quote." Now, unknown to the two men, the tide was out, so the ocean it was still is pretty shallow, but um, he, Brooke was able it seems like he must have been able to get at least an arm loose, and he struggled to stay afloat because they could hear him down there, and he was at the surface still. He didn't just sink down.. Uh. So he's a pretty strong, he was a strong kid. Yeah. And they heard him thrashing around for a few minutes, waiting for him, waiting for it to end, but it didn't. So they finally got, fearful, they got nervous. He might get to help or he might get something he can hold or something like that and live. Um, I mean, they'd hit him a couple of times with presumably the brick, but he, and, and, and they dropped him from the drop. I don't, I don't think it was that far of a drop. Obviously it hadn't killed him. Right. And so they get their gun and they just start shooting down into the darkness below the bridge. According to Holmes, quote, he struggled around down there and Harold, again, Thurman, said, give me the gun. I'll fix him. I gave him the gun and he climbed over the railing and held onto the bridge stringers and fired away. We couldn't see Brooke. It was dark, but we could hear him floundering about, end quote. So you see, Holmes is saying that Thurman had shot at Brooke. Right. Brooke apparently maneuvered under the bridge and they heard him on the opposite side. So he swimming, and which by the way meant he was swimming against the current. Oh. So he was still in, you know, he had yeah. some strength left. But this is very cold water by the yeah. way, as you know. They fired more so- shots down there. Holmes would say that he didn't know if Brooke had lived through the fall, but that clearly can't be true. Holmes' story, by yeah. the way, his confession is less coherent than Thurman's is. To okay. me, I, I read, I've read them both, chunks, most of them, and I, I think Holmes was lying. Any chance he could, just not very good at it. Yeah. I think Thurman was more or less telling the truth. Yeah. So I don't think Thurman took the shots. I think Holmes did. When they heard no more sound from below, they finally just said, okay, he must have finally drowned. He's dead. Let's go. And they left. But Brooke had not drowned before holmes and thurman had left the scene because at 7 25 that it was around seven ish or so or a little bit after seven when they got to the bridge at 7 25 that night two men out gathering wood near the bridge heard someone crying out from the water i can't last much longer yeah so this so obviously holmes and thurman had left by this time he and and uh Brooke was still alive. Uh-huh. So he's able to cry out. He's screaming. The two men, their names are Cal Coley and Vernon Ridley. They said, we tried to help Brooke. We went out there toward the water, but it's it's again, it's Dark. marshy, yeah. it's it's muddy, it's muck. I mean, you can, you know, you can get stuck in this stuff. It's basically a, a big marsh at this point. And these two men said they. Had not, by the way, heard any any shots, which is weird. Yeah, I, I didn't get the sense they had just got there, but maybe they had. Maybe they were from somewhere there, and, and for whatever reason, they didn't hear shots, which seems unusual. This is a, a fairly lonely place at this time of night. Despite clearly hearing Brooke cry out for help, they said they never saw anyone. I mean, it's, it's pitch black; it's yeah. very, very dark. Yeah, and after a few minutes, the night was silent. Aww. The cries ended. So, not long after Brooke was kidnapped and had been missing, some doubt about what Holmes and Thurman said arose. And this was, it's not long, it's just a a few days later, someone came forward with a story that didn't quite jibe with what Holmes and Thurman had said. You you basically heard their story just now. This little wrinkle came from a woman. Her name was Delphine Silvera. She claimed that she and her daughter, Isabel, had been at their four-acre apricot farm in northeast San Jose, pretty near... The part of, of Southeastern Milpitas where the car had been abandoned. Yeah. And they said they had seen a car out there that night. They said they saw a long hooded sedan out, out there waiting. And a, a car that fit the description of Brooks roaster arrived. And they said they had seen five men there. And they had transferred this, this kid who fit Brooks' description into the vehicle the sedan the women said this was about 6 30 p.m and that they were by their barn when they saw this happen and the sedan was was dark they thought maybe it was a Buick but they couldn't be sure it had arrived just before this happened and they said and when when the the roaster got there someone had said well we got him all right and that's when they transferred him to the sedan they said that the young man who had been transferred from the roaster to the sedan was driven away in the sedan with some of the men while one or more of the other men of these five supposed men got into the yellow roaster and followed the sedan away the mother said okay i hadn't reported this again they reported this on the 13th four days later she said i hadn't reported this because i hadn't known about it I went to visit my sister on the 13th Monday for dinner and they were all abuzz with the story and talking about it. And that's when she realized that, oh my gosh, I think I saw the kidnapping on, on that very night. Wow. So this kind of suggests that there were more than just two people, that there were five people involved in this kidnapping. And right away, the police said, uh-uh, we don't buy it. What do you think? Why do you think the police didn't believe her?
0: I don't have any idea.
1: I do. I think. <laughs> well, the number of people is off. Why would Thurman give up Holmes, but no one else on that on the night when he was captured? Makes yeah. absolutely no sense. You're not going to give up one person and not give up three others. Uh, there were no other associates that these two guys were known to be hanging out with. Yeah, the Studebaker Roadster, remember, had been left there. It had not been driven away. Those women didn't know that. Yeah. And the story about them not knowing about the kidnapping for four days when they lived in that area is ludicrous. Yeah. This was that's the true. biggest story yeah. on planet Earth. There was no one not talking about this story that entire yeah. time. So they were almost certainly trying to get the reward money. This is, yeah. I think that was the day of, the day after the reward was offered. I have to go back and look, but it was right when the reward was offered. They were just trying to get a, a piece of reward money from a very wealthy family. That's as that's simple as that. Okay. That's my humble opinion, but they're lying through their teeth. So the, the major discrepancies in the men's stories were really just two things, who planned it and who shot Brooke. Right. They, they probably assumed he died by uh, being shot, right? Yeah. According to Thurman, it was Holmes who said they should kill Brooke. The no, it was, we're going to kidnap him, but we're going to kill him right away. Thurman said that was Holmes' idea. He said that he had bought those, those bricks and the wire at Holmes's direction, and Thurman said, quote, I don't know whether Holmes planned to murder the boy at that time, but at any rate, we wanted to be prepared, which is also almost certainly a lie. He, yeah. he, he had to have known. Yeah, Holmes, though, again, he claimed, quote, the next day we got together and we were appalled by what we had done. I didn't know I could do a thing like that. Harold said, meaning Thurman. Yeah. So Holmes is is clearly implying that Harold had taken the shot. He already said that Harold had taken the shots. Well, yeah. it sure was terrible. Yes, I said, it sort of gets me. I didn't think I could do it either. So... He's talking about remorse, but he's also trying to pin the shooting on on Thurman, which they, they did to each other. I don't know yeah. who took those shots. Again, my guess is it was it was probably Holmes. Yeah. They on the way when they were leaving. By the way, they had tossed out the rest of the wire and an extra concrete block about a mile from the bridge. About two or so hours later is when they made that first call to the Hart House, knowing full well that he was that already dead. He was dead. Yeah. Holmes admitted. They had taken Brooke's wallet that night, and they split the $15 he had on them between themselves. Wow. So $7.50 each was all the ransom they would ever realize mm-hmm. for the kidnapping of Brooke Hart. So that's the end of part one of the Brooke Hart kidnapping, and much worse in the next episode, we'll talk about what happened to Brooke. They still had not found his body. Oh. And then what happened to Harold um, Thurman and to Jack Holmes, the kidnappers. And that's the, the the main part of the story next time. And that will also oh. definitely need a trigger warning for that episode as well. This
0: isn't the main part of the story?
1: This is a, a main part of the story. The okay. most horrific part of the story remains for the next episode.
0: Is it going to be a courtroom drama?
1: Um, <laughs> kind of. You know what? In a weird sense, yes. Well, okay. okay. I can't wait. All right.